0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information, or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let us ask Difficulties in study. Father, we, we recognize that every time we seek to do what we know honors you, we, we feel that that pull, that inability in and of ourself. And so, Father, we ask you tonight to come by your spirit and to strengthen us in our inner person. We pray that Christ would come and set up shop in our in our hearts. God, we pray that you would reveal to us in your word your endless love for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk and to build our lives upon a love like Christ. And Father, as we pray this morning, we ask that you would come and fill us with all your fullness. That there would not be one corner of our life that wouldn't be marked by godliness. That everything we need for life and for obedience and to honor you would just flow from us Because we're filled to the very brim. So Father, we ask that you would come by your word, by the working of your spirit, and you would do this now. For your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Isaiah 41. I do want to read all the way through verse 10. Our our key text tonight is going to be verse 8 and 9 and and 10. But I want to hit it with a running start beginning in verse 1. So I ask you to hear the Holy Word of God. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastland have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, says of the soldering, it is good, and the strengthening it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All God's people said. Amen. So you already have some awareness of the context here. This is that section of Isaiah that we've been reading to call ourselves into, into corporate worship each Sunday morning and much of what Isaiah is doing here. He's in in the context of God's people are going to be dragged off into exile and Assyria is going to be coming and then after them, of of course, Babylon. And he's looking forward to Cyrus, the Persian king that would return the people to the promised land. And in the middle of all of this, he is reminding his people of the stupidity of idolatry and the helplessness of foreign gods while at the same time speaking a word of comfort. And we always find that with God's prophets. Even as he confronts his people and disciplines them in their sin, he's always right there with a word of reassurance. And so we see here in verse 10, this specific focus on fear and dismay or or anxiety. And so after talking about the the futility of the world, we, we see there as he talks about the people's Gathering together to renew their strength and to approach God—that's that's really a picture of what we see in Psalm chapter two. All the nations, all the pagans of the world, gathering together to try and take down God. Their their gods can't do anything for them, and so they they feel like if they could just if they could just rally all their muster and bring all their troops together, then surely they could cast off the shackles of this God whom they hate. So after talking about the state of the pagan world around them and talking about the helplessness of those that resist God, we come to verse eight and he turns and he says, but you, I told you oftentimes in scripture, we see those, that that, that one little conjunction, but, and it often means there's hope here. He says, look to the world and their stupidity, look to the world and their futility, look to the world in the way that they gather against me, knowing they can't do anything, but you, you're different. You're different. You're not like them. Now there's a way in which we can very much relate to the world around us in their weakness and even in their sin and their stupidity at times. But we're a different kind of people. But you, you're a people of hope. You should be a people of fearlessness. You're a people that doesn't need to be swept, swept away by anxiety. So he says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, My friend, how how can we be sure that he's speaking of us here? He's talking about Israel and he's talking about Jacob and he's talking about the offspring of Abraham. And you remember the way that the Apostle Paul spoke about us in back in chapter two of Ephesians. He said, therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world you were alienated you remember that god made promises to a very specific group of people now there were some broad universal promises you think about the flood when he said i'm never again going to flood the earth with water never again will my wrath come in this particular way as long as As long as time goes on, there will be seasons and there will be crops and there will be opportunity for life to continue. That's a universal promise to the whole of mankind. But it was only to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he said, you and you only of all the nations of the earth have I known. These promises are only for you and for your offspring and for you and for your children. And so then when we come to these Old Testament passages. There's plenty of people that say that has nothing to do with us. These are promises for those who are physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For the physical Hebrew, we know having worked through through Ephesians 2 and come into Ephesians 3, you know the answer to this. It's found in Galatians 3. Where we read Galatians 3, 7. Know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. For as many of you as baptized, going to verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In short, what he's saying is, is we are the true heirs, spiritual Israel, those who can claim promises exactly like this. But it's helpful to remind ourselves of this when we look back. And he tells them, "You're the ones I've chosen." To remember that. Just as unworthy as Abraham was as he was out in Ur of the Chaldees. Just as unworthy as Jacob proved himself to be in his craftiness, and his sneakiness, and his betrayal of his brother, and his stealing of a birthright. Just, just as unworthy as all of those were, so we were when Christ found us. I've told you before about the first ever sermon that I preached. And it was that the eyes of the Lord ranged throughout the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him that he may show himself strong on their behalf. And I've told you, I've thought back upon that sermon several times since then and it really disappoints me, some of the thoughts that I had back then because the way that my mind read that text was that God was in heaven, he was surveying the whole of the land and he was looking for the kinds of people that he could use, the kinds of wholehearted people that he could call to himself and welcome into his kingdom. As a matter of fact, I remember very, very vividly that one of the examples I used in that sermon was a, uh, an illustration or a, uh, just a word of wisdom that one of my professors in college had given to me. What he said was, he said, all of you are desiring to go out there and make millions. All of you are designed to go out there and make good money. What you need to understand is, is that there are countless employers out there that will gladly give you more money than you could ever imagine if you would just prove yourself to be the kind of person that's worthy of the pay. They will gladly pay you more than you could, more than you could ever dream of if you would just work hard and prove yourself to be trustworthy. And I took that picture and I applied it to the kingdom of God. How stupid. God doesn't look out and survey the land and find out who are the strong ones and who are the worthy ones and who are the people that I can trust in. Whether it was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or you or me, he chose what is weak. He chose what was despised. He chose what was nothing to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. The same way that he called this pagan man out of Ur of the Chaldees, he called you and he called me. But the beauty in that is, because he called us in the middle of our unworthiness, that also means we can't lose his calling. We can't lose his love. If he loved us because we were once lovely, what happens when we're not so lovely any longer? If he loved us because we were worthy, what happens when we walk in an unworthy manner? Does he turn away? Does he abandon the cause? Surely not. And so we're meant to find hope in this. I know that for much of the world, the idea of unconditional election is a terrifying thing but I submit to you, if it's conditional election, where would that leave you? So in verse nine, he reminds them that you, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners. So this word for took, it can be grasped or snatched. And isn't that very much, as you look backwards on your life, how for many of us it felt. I was walking along, rocking along, minding my own business. I wasn't seeking God. As a matter of fact, probably, if you had asked me, I would have told you I was okay with God. We were mostly cool. He stayed over there and I stayed over here. And yet it was very much like a being snatched up, being awoken out of a bad dream. This is the picture that he's got here. That word can also mean steered. And I want you to think about all the ways that he has numbered your steps. As you look back on your life and all the ways that God worked through his providence to bring you to that very place where you heard the gospel on that day. And there was nothing different about that day from all the other days when you had heard the gospel. Other than the fact that on that day, he gave you eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. He's saying, you're the ones that I took, that I snatched, that I steered. Why you? I loved you because I loved you. He also reminds us that in this, there's a calling. I've called you from the ends of the earth, the furthest corners. Remember what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, that he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. In this context, in Ephesians chapter 2, the far off were the Gentiles and the near were the Jews. And I warned you whenever we talked about that, that we need to never lose sight of the fact that no matter whether you count yourself as the far off one, You've known those people that you looked at and there was nothing in their life that would have indicated they knew anything about God. These weren't what you would call God fears in the scriptures. These weren't those that had some awareness and fear of God but just hadn't put all the pieces together yet of how salvation could come. I'm talking about people that run like pure pagans or outright atheists. And I reminded you then that those people are no harder to save than the little child that sits in a room just like this. Nor are the children that sit in a room like this any any easier to save than the most hardened of sinners. The reality is that every single Christian is a miracle. He's reminding them that I've called you, I've called you from all over, from the furthest ends of the earth. But the clear fact is that we have every right as those who have been called from the ends of the earth as those who have been snatched up and, and led to Christ, as those who are true children of Abraham, we have therefore every right to come to a passage like this and claim it as our own. We have every right to come to a passage like this and find a promise from our Father to us. Now, a very specific people, that's us, the two true children of Abraham. This isn't a promise that the rest of the world can claim for themselves. As we talk about not fearing and we talk about not being anxious or dismayed by the things that are happening around us, we can't look to the lost world and tell them the same. They have great reason to be afraid. They have great reason to be discouraged and dismayed and anxious. But sadly, it's very often the reverse. Sadly, it's the world that is walking around in absolute blissful ignorance. In our our membership class, Last Sunday morning, we talked about the final judgment. And we talked about how horrible it is that so many people walking all around us, not knowing that they're headed straight for the fires of hell, completely oblivious to that fact. Not a care in the world, not a sense of rightful fear or anxiety. But for us, for the children of God, we can hold up this promise to each other and say, don't fear, don't be anxious. And I do pray that you've learned to read in, in some degree that you've learned to read your Bible like this. I've had this Bible now for, I think something like six years, and it's holding up, holding up pretty good. The one that I had before that, the Bible that I retired before I started using this Bible, it was wore out. It was a, It was a cheaper imitation leather and all the stuff was peeling off of it. But one of the things that I miss about that particular Bible, apart from the size of the print, One of the things that I miss about that particular Bible was that I had gone through at one stage in my life, I had spent hours and hours and hours going through those pages and writing a big purple P next to every promise I could find. Every promise that I believed God had made to me as a spiritual son of Abraham, I put a big P next to it. Because I believe that part of what we are lacking we, we we go to God in prayer and we want desperately for Him to answer our prayers and we want nothing but His best for us and we're like spinning around a circle and throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping we hit on something when we've got this treasure trove right here at our at our fingertips. We we know that these are things that He has promised and so we can come and pray these exact things with assurance that He will respond, that He will answer, that He will He will come. And as I've tried to warn you on Wednesday nights, we don't need to think, okay. Here's the promises I really want. Here's the promises God's actually made. So I guess I'm going to settle for these. I mean, it's better to have something than nothing. Right? But if God is who he says he is, if he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he is actually working only for our good, then don't you see these promises that he hasn't made and these requests that he won't answer yes to, they must not be the best. Only the things that he desires for us and only the promises that he's made will be the best. And so you're literally digging for gold. Not literally. I hate to be <laughs> use literally and it's not literally. You're not literally digging for gold. Metaphorically, you're digging for gold. Saying, God, what's the best for me? Apparently part of the best is fear not, for I'm with you. Fear not, for I am your God. Fear not, for I will help you. Fear not, for I will strengthen you with my right hand. Those are the promises worth having. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made them. Do you understand? So there's great hope to be found here. And the realization that when we come to these promises, he's not like you or like me. I remember one Wednesday night we were talking about God's love for answering, for paying up on his promises, for answering our prayers when we pray these promises back to him. And I said, look, what father is there that doesn't delight in Coming through on his promises to his children, and then I had to pause because I am a father of three little girls. I had to pause and go, "Well, that's not altogether true, is it?" There are plenty of times that I've made promises that I later regretted. Now, now we know with little children, the reality is anything you say can and will be used against you as a promise. You say we might go to the park later. That is taken as absolutely, positively guaranteed, unless the sun falls from the sky. We will be going. So help me God, we will be going to the park. But there's plenty of times when I made real promises to my children and I fully intended on keeping them. I would have delighted in keeping them. But what happened? Either I learned something new that I didn't know before. Either I became lazy or weak and didn't want to pay up on what I had said. Maybe my resources didn't pan out. Maybe circumstances changed in a way that were unforeseen. All these things could come in and make me regret my promises and frankly resent my kids for holding it against me. Yet frustrated, they continue to ask, now can we go? Now can we do? Now can we have? This is never the case with God. He doesn't make these promises unaware of what's to come. He doesn't make these promises with limited access to knowledge or wisdom or the resources necessary to make it come about. So you've got a father who makes promises that are only for your good, your absolute best. And you got a promise who delights, a father who delights in answering and paying up on his promises. And yet we go into our prayer closet and we just start throwing stuff against the wall and hoping something's going to stick. Do you you see the lunacy in this? So he says to you, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I don't want to revisit Wednesday night's. Lesson, remember Wednesday night, we talked about this position as a servant in the kingdom of God. And we referred back to Psalm 84, where the psalmist says it would be better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Whatever the lowest servant is in the house of God, that is a more honorable, a more blessed position than to dwell in the house of unrighteousness and wickedness. But we talked about really what is the nature of a servant and a servant is one who does whatever his master bids. You think about us on this side of the cross where we can say that we're no longer our own because we've been bought with a price. We think about the price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. The price of your life was the blood of Christ Jesus. He has bought you at the most expensive price in all the world. And therefore, we are his servants and we do whatever it is without objection, without questioning, even without fully understanding where it is that he's leading. How often do we feel this sense that God is truly calling us to do something as His servant, but we're constantly trying to look five steps down the road before we take that first step of obedience? This isn't the way of the servant. But unlike so many other servants, we do have so much of His plan given to us here. And unlike servants in other circumstances, we know that this Master is only working again for our good. What a gift! That you have a master that says, I've made the plan. I've set the purposes. You just move in obedience and you don't worry about the end. You don't worry about the output. That's the thing about being a servant, isn't it? The master of the house, he has to worry about what's produced. Let's let's just say we're on a farm in some way. He's got to worry about the crops coming in and selling the crops and making the money and all the rest. I'm just a servant. I just dig the ditch, man. I don't worry about what happens after that. I don't have to worry about where my needs are met. Because my master cares for me. You think about the way that this ought to free us up. But instead, again, we look to him and say, unless it makes sense to me, and unless you'll give me the end of the rainbow and tell me exactly what's happening, I'm not going to move until then. So I ask you, in reference to Wednesday night's sermon, have you thought in these last few days of yourself like a servant of God? Have you sought for the things that bring him pleasure and honor and just did them without question? God says it, I do it. I wish I could say that I did without question, but that's not the reality. I continue to find myself trying to either look at the eye, look straight in Scripture, what God's calling me to do, and find all the excuses why it doesn't apply to me, or i wait to see how things are going to pan out instead of just charging ahead. But he's saying that you are my servant, and I have chosen you and not cast you off. I've not chased you away. You're my servant, and by the way, you're all a bunch of sorry servants, but I haven't got rid of you yet. I haven't cast you off. How many times, if you were God, would you have kicked you out of the kingdom? How many times, if you were God, would you have abandoned this project? And yet he doesn't. You're my cherished possession. You're my delight. Because he didn't look to us and see our failures as a servant. He looks to us and sees his son's perfect righteousness. Isn't that the beauty? But if we could just settle this in our heart, as we look forward to this, I'm not even to the main portion here, but as we look forward to this not being fearful and not being anxious, how much of that, bless you, could just be settled if we would just settle in our heart? He's not going to divorce you. He's not going to kick you out of the house. He is not going to let go of you. He's not going to stop short. He's going to complete the work. It was Augustus Toplady in his hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It was, I think it was Wednesday night when I said, I've got to stop using quotes without figuring out who said it. It, it. Even in the day of the internet, it's hard sometimes to remember who said some of these things. This one took me a while to dig for, but I found it. So credit to Augustus Toplady who wrote that the saints who are in heaven are in every way happier, but in no way more secure than us. They've, they've, they've received it. They've, they've seen it. They've realized what we long for. And so they're happier. They're no longer touched by sin. They're no longer touched by weakness. They have seen their Savior. They've realized everything that they hoped for in this lifetime, short of the resurrection and the new body and the new heavens and the new earth. They're way happier than we are. But their salvation is not one single ounce more secure than ours. That's this picture. How would that change us? If we would really believe that salvation is the only thing worth having, if God alone is the only true treasure and we would believe, and you can't lose it, it's secure from eternity past to eternity future, where then would there be room for fear and anxiety? The problem I say to you is disordered affections. I, I don't believe looking at you people, looking at myself, Generally speaking, I don't believe that I can lose my salvation. That's not a thing that I wrestle with. I know some do perhaps wrestle with. Not a thing I wrestle with. I know it wasn't of me. It isn't from me now. It won't be from me until the end of of time. I trust that he has me and that I'm secure. The problem is I don't value that salvation more than I value all the other stuff, all the rubbish. And it's revealed to me every time I am fearful and I am anxious. So he says, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not. Be not dismayed. The NASV says, Do not be anxious, excuse me, do not anxiously look about you. That's a better picture, isn't it? Do not anxiously look about you. You're like a Like a man with his head constantly on a swivel, looking for that next shot to come. Boy, how that doesn't describe me. But why do you think he says? I I tried to go through and count, but it's difficult because there's different words that are used. But there's something like a hundred times in the Old Testament where it says, don't be afraid. Why do you think God says so many times, don't be afraid? Because it's easy for God's people to be afraid. And it all began in the garden. Adam and Eve were not afraid. They were content and they were happy. And the minute sin entered into the world, they were afraid. They hid from each other. They hid from God. What more blessed thing could there be than God walking in the cool of the day in his garden? And Adam and Eve found it a terror. Why? Because of sin. As soon as sin entered in, there was this fear. Not not righteous and holy and and Christ-exalting fear of God, but a cowering nature. A, a doubting nature, an enslavement to fear. And, and even when it doesn't present itself expressly as a fear of God because of his judgment and because of his wrath coming against us, even still we find ourselves just swarming around with unexplainable fear and, and anxiety. Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Does that sound like you? The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. How many times do I find myself anxious and fearful about nothing? I I stop for a moment, Go wait a minute, what are you so afraid of? And it's nothing other than this wave of sin. And I'm constantly used to living in this state. And so I'm afraid when there's nothing to be afraid of. I look to people who I know love me and care for me. And all of a sudden in my mind, they're against me. There's somebody to be feared and not trusted. And so scripture tells us that perfect love casts out fear, but I'm not perfect yet. I haven't been perfected in my love and in my understanding even of God's love. And so instead of looking to him, instead of having my heart drawn to him in love and in trusting in his love, I look everywhere else. I look at the situations around me. I look at the circumstances around me and people often say to each other, oh man, there's nothing to be afraid of. You're non-believers. It'll say this. Like they'll, they'll get a bad report from the doctor and somebody will look at them and oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. What? There's a lot to be afraid of. You could die. Or they look at the economy or they look at the weather. Or they look at, look, there's all kinds of things. The world is a scary place. There's lots of ways to die. There's lots of dumb ways to die, according to the Psalms. There's plenty of stuff. If I just look around me, there's plenty of real danger out there. And then when I look into my own heart, is there nothing to fear? There's plenty to fear there. There's all manner of enticement to to fear. Even if I just consider my own sin and and the devil gets in my ear and convinces me, if those people actually knew who you were, if those people actually knew the thoughts that came into your head, they would reject you. They would hate you. They would cast you out.
1: So if I look around myself,
0: there's plenty to be afraid of. And if I look inside myself, there's plenty to be afraid of then. And even as I, as I try to look forward in time, I find myself borrowing fear from tomorrow, borrowing troubles from tomorrow. I asked a question one Wednesday night, and it's, sometimes I'll say stuff that I didn't plan to say, and then it sticks with me. Maybe, more, maybe that's why God has me say it, for my sake more than for yours. But, but I asked the question, because I heard a man pose the question at one point, why is it that if there's a, there's a one in a million chance that something bad might happen, I go ahead and live in fear today as if it's guaranteed to happen? Like, like a one in a thousand percent chance that some really bad thing is going to come to fruition and I sit and I live right now as if it's already happened. I mean, I'm mourning, I am weeping, I've already had the funeral, it's over. But I've got all these promises from God who never lies and I don't live as, a, as if those were true. That's what the author of Hebrews says that this, this substance is, this enjoyment of things is. That's what faith is. It's I'm enjoying the things of tomorrow as if I actually have them today because the one that promised always pays up. And I never live like that. Instead, I always live borrowing troubles from something that may not even come. I would, I would venture a guess that the majority of faith of time I've spent in misery has been spent over things that never happened, never were going to happen. And so we we find ourselves in this place, and the reality is that for so many people, it's almost like it becomes a sport to them. That's one of the weird things about the day and age in which we live. I don't do Facebook much anymore because you find people almost reveling in their fear or reveling in their anxiousness, as if it's an old friend or a, or a comfortable blanket to them. And then... The the danger with this though is, is then all of a sudden you have this excuse for all manner of bad behavior or timidity of obedience towards God. Instead of recognizing, this is the thing that God has commanded us against. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. The same word. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't do it. Now, we recognize that God's got to enable the things that he commands if we're ever going to do it. You don't have it in yourself to just stop being afraid, do you? Any more than, to quote Ali Seal, some people don't like what other people like. Some people are afraid what other people are not afraid of. You're afraid of what you're afraid of. You can't just stop being afraid. So, what, what is it then? What is our hope in this? Well, first it's recognizing what the nature of fear is and primarily it's just the sin of unbelief because again what are we saying in our fear God I don't believe you he's saying you have nothing to fear that's one of his words one of his promises fear not I'm with you so what do we say every time deep down in our little hearts what do we say every time we find ourselves riddled with anxiety and with fear we're saying to God I don't trust you and I don't believe you and we act as though that's a minor sin, right? That's a, that's a minor issue. Like if I got up before you and I told you, hey guys, I, I was really riddled with fear last night over getting up and preaching the sermon over something. I was, I, was really, I, was, I was really just kind of reveling in this state of fear or anxiety before God. Y'all would all go, oh man, that's, that's rough. I'll be praying for you, whatever. Flip that and I say, you know guys, last night I was having a really rough time and so I snorted a little Coke. You go, what? But is there anything less honorable to a man than for somebody to say, I don't trust you? You're not trustworthy. You can't be believed. But that's exactly what we're saying when we live in this state of fear. So he's saying, don't, don't do it. Not only because it shows disbelief in God and lack of faith in God but it leads to all other manner of sin. How much of the sin that you committed in your life, you look to the back end of it and you realize that was just fear working its way out. Again, in timidity of obedience. I mean, this, this slowness to obey because we're fearful of the outcome. How often do you lie because you're afraid? Stealing or cheating. Think about Abraham lying about his wife. Why? He was afraid. He was a coward. And so I remind you that so much of what the church needs and so much of what the world needs is bravery, is courage. Not just in the days of Joshua, not just in the days of Isaiah, but today. And so here is the hope. Here is what we're meant to do when we find ourselves. You can't help that fear that strikes you in a moment. Please don't hear me saying that if fear or anxiety comes upon you in a moment, that that in and of itself is sin. But it reveals a sin that is deeper within you. It reveals a doubt that's within you. And so what do we do? He says, fear not. Why? What's the basis? For. This is the reason why you should not fear. And this is where you should therefore turn whenever you find yourself fearful. Fear not. For. I am with you. Look at all the I statements here. I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm with you. I've told you before about my struggles with loneliness, and it's real. It's, it's weird, but it's, it's real. Heidi, was, Heidi asked me if I was going home. I, I walk through the office at lunch hour. I usually take an early lunch. I'll walk through the office at lunch hour, and I'll say, I'm going to grab a bite. I don't know why I say it like that, but I do. I'm going to grab a bite. And so anytime I walk through the office, anytime between the hours of 11 and 12, they'll say, going to grab a bite. I don't know. Was that Friday, Heidi, or th- Thursday, when, yeah, it must have been Thursday. I was walking through and Heidi said, Hey, you going to grab a bite? And I said, No, Amanda went up to see Annie. And she said, Oh, then you're definitely not going home. Right? She knows. I get lonely, man. It's not a fearful loneliness. I just despise this sense of, of being alone and being by myself. But for many, that's a fearful thing. But how much more so whenever we feel like our God is not there with us? You remember what happened whenever the Israelites were going out against the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp? What happened? A mighty roar went up because they believed that that was a representation of God's presence. God is with me. So courage all of a sudden showed up in the battlefield. Courage showed up in the times of fear and and loss. And so we we find this, but here's the problem. For so many of us, we leave God in the sanctuary or in our prayer closet. Maybe we worship God in our truck. We spend some time in prayer in the shower. We come in here on a Sunday night or on a on a, on a Wednesday night and we, we engage with God there. And then we go to the workforce or we go to the ball field and we don't really see what place God has there. And because we're not thinking about him, because we're not meditating on him, because we're not in constant prayer to him, He we feel as though he's not there with us. We don't really know where he fits into all of this. And that's one of the real dangers of not constantly having this sense of of communion with him everywhere we go and looking for opportunities. How much would your life change and how much of the fear and whatever else hits you in the workplace wouldn't come if you found yourself constantly talking about God? Every opportunity you had just bragging on who your God is, talking about his might and his goodness and his majesty. How how would that change your own heart? So he says, "I I am with you. And that's over and over again. Again, back to this... Back to God's promises to Joshua. That is the basis for hope. Think about what Moses said to God on Mount Sinai after the Golden calf incident. God said, "Okay, I'm going to send you on ahead to Sinai, but I'm not going to go with you. Because if I go, y'all are going to mess up again and I'm going to have to destroy you. And you remember what Moses said. If you're not going to go with us, then don't send us. For those people that have actually been with God. Those people that actually spent time in the presence of God, the thought of being away from God, absent from God, being cut off from God is torture, it's death. For those who know their weakness and they know that their strength comes from God, the thought of going into battle or getting up and taking a single breath or step, it's unthinkable. So one of God's promises is, I'm with you. He says, I'm with you, he goes on, because I'm your God. Not only are we God's chosen people, but Psalm 16 says that the Lord is our chosen portion. Again, I I ask you, how much of your fear and, and anxiety is tied to the thought of losing things that aren't God? And again, what it reveals is we don't really believe that God is enough. We don't believe that he is more worthy than anything else this world has to offer. I am ashamed to tell you how much of my life I have spent worried about money, of all things, money. Goals? I've got the God who owns all the gold and all the silver and all the cattle on a thousand hills. And every time some bad financial news came my way, I found myself miserable, completely unhappy. What did I prove? That I did not believe what a gift it was for God to be my God. Now part of this comes from a weak theology, a weak understanding of who this God actually is. It's in the same flow. I told you, this is where he's kind of talking smack to these idols and reminding us who he is. It's in Isaiah 44, 6, where he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I asked you before, because it's been asked of me, are you capable of spending even five uninterrupted moments thinking about God, just the person of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and all the ways that God has shown up throughout your life. How much less fearful would you be if you would study that practice? If you would turn off your car radio on the way to work tomorrow and just say, I'm going to spend some time just meditating on what I know to be true about God. And then how would that drive your desire to study More of who this God is, to know more of who this God is as you meditate on Him. So He says that I will not forsake you, I will not leave you, I will be with you, I will be your God, I am your God, and He says I will strengthen you. As we talked about this strengthening in the inner man, I made reference to the fact that so many of us, we feel weakness in our outer man coming more and more by the day. I still thought I was an athlete. At 41, I would have still told you I was a pretty good athlete. I couldn't prove that I was a pretty good athlete, but in my mind, I was still convinced I could still run if I needed to run, I could still pick up something heavy if I needed to pick up something heavy. Something happened at 42, and I don't know if it's just I got smart in my brain and realized you were never an athlete, or whether finally I started aging for the first time and I realized I can't run, I can't jump, I can't pick up heavy stuff, I don't wanna get in a fight. But I also started noticing some mental aging as well. Difficulty remembering things, difficulty recalling words. And and so I I recognize that as my outer man is wasting away, I learn to rely more and more on this strengthening in the inner man, this, this renewal that comes. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we don't lose heart. Why? Because though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being strengthened, being renewed day by day. So we ask God, God, what are you strengthening us for? You say you will strengthen us. That's a question we should ask. He said you won't forsake us because you're our God. You say that you're strengthening us. Strengthening us for what? For the kind of things I'm calling you to do. And part of what I'm calling you to do are things that if you try to rely on your own power and your own vitality, you will fail. So I'm going to allow this outer weakness to come upon you to teach you to wait on me, to teach you to be patient, to teach you to rely upon me. And the promise is, I will give you 100% of the strength you need to do 100% of whatever I've called you to do. How many times has God called you to do something and you said to yourself, I just don't think I can. And I'm not talking about like Moses with the slow tongue thing. I'm not saying I don't have the ability. Because here's the, here's the truth. I am a, I shouldn't say this. you all use it against me. You already know. I'm a pretty self-confident guy sometimes. More often than not, it's not God calls me to do something. I think, I don't think I can climb that mountain. I don't think I can throw this football over that hill. I don't think I can run this 40-yard dash. It's I don't think I can because I don't think I want to. I don't think I can pay the price. I don't think I can live with the repercussions. I want you to think about times when God has called you. You know that he has called you to have a hard conversation. It wasn't that you didn't know the words to say. It's not that you didn't know the dude's number. You just said, I don't think I'm strong enough. He says, I will strengthen you. I will give you the inner strength. I will come to you. He says in Isaiah 40, just before this, even though youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, they who wait for the Lord, he shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the promise. I will get you to the finish line. There's nothing I've called you to do that I won't give you the strength to do. So that there's never a time when he's calling you to do something that you have the ability to look back to him and say, I just can. not He says, I've called you to do it. I will strengthen you to do it. But he goes beyond that. He doesn't just say, I will strengthen you. He says, I will help you. So that even as we exercise whatever strength that he's given us, we're still not alone. Even as we could say with the Apostle Paul, I work harder than any of them, though it's not I, but the grace of God that is within me. We recognize that even still, it is God who comes and He helps. He says in verse 13, after the text we're reading, for I, the Lord your God, I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says in the next verse, verse 14, fear not you worm, Jacob. He's not saying you're a worm to me, he's saying you appear as a worm to the world. This is a text that is used of Jesus Christ. We know Jesus is not a worm. But he's saying to the world, you appear as nothing, as weak, as worthless. He says, you don't need to fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, for I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. He's saying, not only do I strengthen you for whatever it is that I've called you to do, I come, he says, I take you by your right hand, like a little child, like a little baby. I lead you by your right hand, and I do this work that you're incapable of doing. I give you the strength to do it, and I come and I lead you through it. I walk you through it, for I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So if we we come to the place where we believe that, okay, God is worth more, and therefore I'm going to walk in obedience and do whatever he's called me to do, he is with me, he will strengthen me, he is my God. Anything this world has to hold over my head is nothing. It's dumb compared to him, that he is worth more. Still, there is this doubt or this fear that can threaten us, this fear of falling away. As we look into our inner man, and I've told you, this is not, this is not a particular fear that I struggle with, but I'm sure my day will come. But as you look inside yourself and you see all manner of unrighteousness and you, you see so little about yourself that looks like Christ, I desire for some evidence, right? For something to bolster my assurance that I will not fall away. And I know, as I said earlier, if I'm left to myself, I will absolutely lose my salvation. I can hardly keep up with my car keys. I can hardly remember all my children's names. But if I can trust that he is the one that is upholding me, that it's his righteousness and his righteous right hand that is carrying me through to the end and I can believe that what waits for me at the end is the only thing worth really having, then I got nothing to fear. I got nothing to fear because the promise is worth everything that I could lose. I got nothing to fear because he's holding me and holding the promise. He's guaranteeing that I'm going to reach the end. Psalm 121 says this, I lift up my eyes to the hill for where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will, not, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. That word for will not be moved, that moved means slept. I won't let you slip. I won't let you stumble. I won't let you fall. What did the Lord say to Peter on that night? He said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And, but when you fall, you're, you're going to stumble. You're not going to fall that you may be destroyed. You're not going to fall that you may be shattered. You're not going to fall that you're going to be cast out. I prayed for you that when you fall, you will turn again. That your strength may not fail. That we have this one who is an intercessor for us now, Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The same one that said that no one will snatch you from my hand and no one will snatch you from my Father's hand. I am the Father are one. We've got the same purpose and the same plan and the same people. And we're holding you fast in our hand. And so you're never going to slip. You're never going to fall. You're never going to be destroyed. If I can believe that to be true and I can believe the promise at the end of the rainbow that it's him is worth it, then I've got nothing to fear. I've got nothing to be anxious about. And I can charge forward with full assurance, with absolute obedience, without having to know every step along the way. And so my prayer for us as a people is that as we consider this, we come back to these, we would learn to preach these five I statements that he's made to to ourselves. Whenever we find fear creeping in, we find anxiety creeping in, we will remind ourselves that God is with us. We'll remind ourselves with a blessing that he is our God. We will draw ourselves away to meditate upon him and who he is. We'll remind ourselves that he is there strengthening us even in that moment. We will preach to ourselves the truth that he helps us. He doesn't leave us on our own to battle this thing out. And we'll constantly remind ourselves and each other that we're safe and secure in his hands. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for these promises. Father, we do confess that sin and doubt is very much a real enemy. So we ask your forgiveness for those times when we have doubted your goodness and we have displayed our unbelief. Father, we ask that you would come and you would strengthen us. We ask that you would help us to believe these promises. We ask that you would help us to be a bold and courageous people. Father, we ask that you would help us as a result of all of this to walk in obedience to you this week. There's not a one of us that don't have some awareness of some place where we have held back full obedience from you. So I pray that you would stir in our hearts by the work of your spirit to see it, to confess it, to know it, and then to do it. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake.